Pray with me now. Father, we ask that you would speak to us and build your church, not for our glory, but for yours alone. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you don't already have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 12, I would invite you now to do so. We'll be looking at verse 13 through 17. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin penned the now famous line. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain. You probably know the rest, except death and taxes. In the state of Texas alone, we have a hotel tax, a property tax, a sales tax, a tobacco tax, a fireworks tax, a boat tax, a coin-operated machines tax, a franchise tax, a cement production tax, an inheritance tax, an insurance tax. And that's just to name a few of the 60-plus separate taxes, fees, and assessments, including your local sales tax, that is controlled by the Texas Comptroller's Office. Anybody's blood pressure rising yet? Taxes can be frustrating. The former two-time Secretary of Defense, now in his 80s, Donald Rumsfeld, almost annually writes a letter to the IRS. And this is what he says. Dear sir or madam, I have mailed in our federal income tax and our gift tax filings for 2016 and have requested an extension due to the delays and materials required to complete our tax returns. I consider it important to inform you that I have absolutely no idea whether our tax returns and tax payment estimates are accurate. The U.S. tax code and numerous forms are so complex that despite my best efforts, despite having a college degree, and despite having the assistance of an experienced tax accounting firm, I do not have confidence. I know that, it, that I know that it, of what is being required. Therefore, I cannot know, as I suspect is the case with a great many Americans, whether or not our returns will be proved correct. Close quote. I think I could say with pretty fair certainty that if we had to boil down amidst everybody that is here today, one unifying belief amongst all of us, it would be that we would like to pay less in taxes. If nothing else, we could agree on that. And maybe not even pay taxes at all. Imagine for a moment, we have a small church here in Fredericksburg, and yet Fredericksburg is populated by over 10,000. The local surrounding communities in the, in, the, in the metropolitan area that is around Fredericksburg, the grand and glorious that it is, all 24 plus thousand people. If we wanted to grow this church, I imagine that if I had just taken a bit of the money from the church coffers this week and invested it into social media campaigns, invested it into a a large one-page ad in the Fredericksburg Standard, if I'd taken out radio ads and I would have said something to this effect, this week come to Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship where I will preach on Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17 with the title, Jesus says, you don't have to pay your taxes. We would have a large church. Immediately, people would come. They may not agree with what we would say about Christ, but they would all be in agreement that we like the fact that Jesus says you don't have to pay your taxes. 
But to bend the scriptures to fit our agenda would rob us not only of the truth of this passage, but grace and how as Christians we should associate and relate to the civil government. Indeed, the text this morning argues for us to consider that paying our taxes is a way Christians display to the world our allegiance to God. Paying our taxes is a way Christians display to the world our allegiance to God. And if that statement is not countercultural, I'm not sure of what is. Where do we see that in this passage? Well, just look with me at the setup. I've entitled this first point, The Setup, and that's in verses 13 through 16. You'll notice, by way of context, this rolling opposition to Christ. You'll see that in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. These aren't the same people that we saw last week. Last week, in verse 27 of chapter 11, we saw the chief priests, scribes, and elders. We will see next week... A different group, the Sadducees. It's as if they're just rolling wave after wave after wave of reinforcements here at Christ in the midst of the temple, seeking to trap him. Seeking to, as Matthew 22 says, entangle him in his speech. Their hatred for Christ goes to great lengths. You might just turn in your Bible back a few chapters in Mark to Mark chapter 3. This isn't the first time this morning that we see these people, the Herodians. This also isn't the first time that we have seen them banded together with the Pharisees. Mark chapter 3. Look with me there. Again, verse 1. Christ is in the synagogue. There's a man there with a withered hand. The Pharisees are watching Jesus to see what he will do, whether or not he will heal this man on the Sabbath. Verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do harm, to do good, to save life, to kill? And they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he stretched it out, his hand was restored. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And they have been at that work since chapter 3, now to chapter 12, and seeking ways to destroy him. Not much has changed in even our world today. Many today are still seeking to take the words of Christ, as the Pharisees and Herodians are doing so here, and twist them to trap him, to fit our own agenda. Flattery doesn't get you very far, and yet they seek to use that means of approaching Christ with flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. You just feel the dripping of flattery off their tongue. For you're not swayed by appearances. You have no fear of man. You're not partial to some. You won't be influenced by mere men. And they were right. Christ is not swayed by some mere appearance, including even the Pharisees and the Herodians. Notice what they're trying to do to trap him. They ask him a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar 
or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It's a good question. It's a question that that has depth to it. Because Christ can't just say, well, don't pay your taxes. Because if he says, don't pay your taxes, immediately we can indict this man for rebellion against Rome. Let's immediately have him arrested because he's inciting rebellion against the Roman authorities. But if he says, well, pay your taxes. Well, then the people that are all now beginning to follow Christ rather than the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the people will now rebel against Christ. He's the one who's supposed to be the Messiah. He's the heir of David's throne. He's the one who's supposed to free Israel from Roman tyranny. So if he says, pay their taxes, then the people will abandon him. We win whether he says yes or no. The tension is thick. It wasn't as if uh, it was an easy question at all. The Roman tax system was very corrupt. It was heavy. In fact, many believe even the taxation of Rome is what brought about the fall of Rome. It was confusing. It was extensive, problematic on many different levels. And yet, what does Christ say? First of all, he knows their hypocrisy. They probably were paying their taxes, but they weren't asking the question coming from a heart of truth. They were pretending to be interested in this. They really had no interest in it as it relates to how the people should relate to the local government. They were interested hypocritically in using it for their own advantage. Knowing their hypocrisy, hypocrisy, verse 15, he says to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? He calls for this coin. The coin of that day would have been a denarius. It was a a Roman coin. It was representing a day's wages for a laborer. The key to this passage, the key to understanding, especially Christ's response in verse 17, is the question Christ poses, whose likeness and inscription is this? So for the remainder of our time, that's what we're going to look at. How does Christ answer the question, whose likeness and inscription is this? The people answer it, but how does he use their answer to direct the people's attention to the right way of thinking. So we're going to take verse 17 and we're going to slice it in half. We're going to look at 17a, which is our next point, an earthly allegiance. They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Is Christ here separating The church from the state. In many ways, that is what the Pharisees and the Herodians would have loved to have seen. As he's saying, there is, they have nothing to do with one another. On this coin that he is given, there was a, a picture or a likeness on one side and an inscription on the other. The question of whether or not to pay one's taxes or to not pay one's taxes was not simply a question being posed of political submission. It was also a question 
of moral and religious implication. This is what I mean by that. The Pharisees were concerned about the moral and religious implication of the question. Presumably, the Herodians were, were concerned with the political ramifications of the question. The Pharisees are the, are the fanboys, if you will, of Israel. The Herodians are the ones who have sold themselves out for Rome. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the Herodians, the liberals, the Republicans and Democrats of that day, if you will. The Pharisees resisted and resented Rome. The Herodians accommodated Rome. These two parties were as diverse as oil and water. And yet they were united in their hatred of Christ. United in their desire to see Christ destroyed. The Pharisee, because Christ was disrupting their religious agenda. The Herodians, because he threatened their political agenda. Now, why were the Pharisees so concerned with the moral and religious implications of this question? We have to go into history just a bit. So walk with me through Roman history a little bit. 44 BC, before Christ, you have Gaius Julius Caesar, who comes to power, and he is made dictator perpetuo, or dictator for life, in January of 44 BC. You know anything about Roman history? He didn't last all that long. Just a few months later, he was assassinated. But during his short reign, all the denarii issued carried his image on one side of the coin. And that was the first time in Roman history that a coin bore the image of a living Roman. Fast forward 40 plus years, now in the days addressed in our passage. And there is a new Caesar ruling. Most historians believe that the coin used in the passage there brought to him in verse 16 was probably a tribute penny. One side, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, essentially saying Augustus is a god. The other side of the coin is thought to have a picture of a Roman goddess of peace with a Latin inscription, High Priest. Now, if you're a religious leader of Israel and someone gives you a coin with an inscription of a man which says he's a God and a high priest. Immediately, what would have jumped into their mind is Exodus 20, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Do you see the tension here? It's layered because the Pharisees are thinking, well, not only can we get rid of Rome, but we can also worship God the way we're supposed to. They were up in arms about having to use this coin because in many ways it was to them an idol. Not for them, but for the people. And yet Christ here comes with this word of that's his image on the coin. By implication, that's his coin. Pay the man what you owe him. We know that God is the one who sets up kings and removes them. Daniel 2 verse 21 says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is the author 
the author of all authorities, the authority of all authorities. And he tells us in his word of how we are to deal with earthly authorities. So just turn in your Bible. You probably already know we may go there. Go to Romans chapter 13. Look with me there at verse 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing of authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. I don't know about you, but I rarely think of the governing authorities... I rarely think of the President of the United States or the, even the IRS as a branch of that ex, part of the government that's bringing in taxes. I rarely think of them as authorities that are ministers of God. I'd rather not think about them like that. And yet here we have Paul teaching us what it means to be subject to governing authorities. Indeed, even our understanding of God's complete sovereignty is what fuels our submission to authorities around us. You might just look there at Romans 13, and if you took your eyes a few verses ahead of Romans 13 to Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21, your Bible might say something to the effect of marks of a true Christian. And if you look at Romans 13, 8 through 14, you might see the heading, Fulfilling the Law Through Love. In a sense, you have sandwiched between two passages giving us characteristics of the believer, rooted and grounded in the love of God, how we are to deal in love with those in authority over us. We are to honor God-given authority. Because God has all authority and prescribes, and I use that word intentionally, prescribes all earthly authority. And certainly this brings up the question, like any good Texan, well, when is the time I do not have to submit to the governing authorities? And is there a time? And yes, there is a time. When the state commands us to do something that disobeys God's law according to the Bible... We are not to submit. That may be a command to violate a direct commandment of God. It may be a command to do an immoral act. It may be something that causes us to go against our conscience as bound by Holy Scripture. 
but we must submit to the government that God has put in place unless the government is requiring we go against Holy Scripture. So if the government commands us to do something against Scripture, we do not submit. If it commands us to go against our conscience that is bound by Holy Scripture, we do not. If it commands us to do an act that is against God's commands, we do not submit. But notice, it's not when they require us to go against our personal preference. It's not when they require us to go against our personal feelings, our personal beliefs. It's only when it is contrary to Holy Scripture and our conscience bound by Holy Scripture. Some of them, some of us, probably myself, thrown into that mix. Think of the IRS as the infernal revenue service. And yet Christians are called to pay taxes honestly and are even to do it as an act of love. Scripture tells us more about how we should deal with our authorities, specifically those even in the state. We're told in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, to pray for our leaders, to pray for those in authority over us, specifically mentioned evening the evening even the leaders of the state. Some kind of separation between church and state is needed. And yet what we must understand here is that both are under the authority and control of God. It's not as if Christ is saying, give to Caesars, that's only Caesars. And give to God's, that's only God's. And never the two shall meet. No, he is expressing the eternal nature of God's kingdom and the reign God has over all other kingdoms, including every state, government, or nation. In fact, the understanding of God's eternal sovereign reign over all little k, little kings, is the foundation upon which we as Christians pray for the state. Upon the foundation upon we, which we as Christians pay our taxes or honor the state, or submit to the state. Not because the state is perfect, but because they are those that God has placed there. Not because they are fair, not because they advance our agenda, but because God is in charge of them. And we will be held accountable to how we have dealt with the authority he prescribed for us. Parents, you can go a long way in teaching your children about God's design for authority by how you deal with the state authority. You can teach your children that authority is a means of grace and how you deal with the state authority because they will catch your example. Many spend 364 days mocking the authority of the state and then somehow try to wrestle down some good attitude to walk in and pay their taxes on that 365th day. And I would encourage you, don't mock God's authority. The amount of comic strips and jokes with different presidents at the butt of those jokes is not appropriate according to Scripture. We're to honor our authorities. We're not to make fun of God's authorities. Paying taxes is actually a means of grace. I said it. Paying taxes is actually a means of grace. Why? Because it keeps us from loving our money too much and is an acknowledgement that God owns it all and can and will provide. I would rather not pay taxes. In fact, I'm exempt from Social Security taxes as a minister. But I still do pay my taxes. And it's helpful for me to remember 
God's the one who controls all things. The statement to pay Caesar what was Caesar, who owned those coins, was extremely simple and yet profound. And yet it's only half the statement. Paying our taxes is a way Christians can display to the world our allegiance to God. And yet, what about the second half of this statement? What about our allegiance to God? Look, let's look at 17b. Back in Mark chapter 12. Render to, Caesar th- render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Point number three, an eternal allegiance. Render to God the things that are God, says Christ. And by this one simple statement, Christ denounces the supposed divine nature of Caesar as a mini-God and acknowledges God alone as the supreme sovereign. When you go to a ball game or maybe as a, as a kid, you, you flip a coin to decide what are we going to do. You don't acknowledge that half that coin has authority and the other half of that coin does not. The coin has all of authority. The whole coin. Both sides of the coin. It doesn't matter which side you pick. You acknowledge that that coin has authority. You might call heads. It comes down as tails. You acknowledge that the tails has authority as well. There's no two sides that Christ is trying to separate here. It's two sides of the same coin. God owns it all. Christ is separating out Caesar from God, but in actuality, he's placing Caesar under God. Because he notice he says, God's kingdom transcends all things and to God the things that are God's. We noted, the question that Christ asked is the key, and it's the key even to the second part. Whose likeness and inscription is this? For the coin, it was Caesar's. But for us as Christians, we bear the image of God. Genesis one twenty seven tells us this. Man and woman, made in the image and likeness of God. The coin is from Caesar's mint, but we as Christians are from an eternal mint. And thus owe to God that which is his. And so we ought to render to God that which is his. We ought to render to him glory and worship and allegiance and faithful service and obedience. Even our very life, as Mark tells us. I thought it's interesting, just the few verses in scripture, and there's others, but just listen to the few verses in scripture that connect the idea of money with our allegiance to God. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Peter 1, 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and by your blood you purchased for God those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nature, nation. If the coin was to be given to Caesars because it was Caesars, we are to be given to God because we are God's. Notice 
how the Pharisees and Herodians, these people who hated Christ, responded. They marveled at him. I played enough athletics in my life to know that there's the opposing team that unless it's just the perfect day, you will not beat them. You work all season long knowing they're on that schedule, knowing you will come up against them. And yet you go up against them and you lose and you get trounced. And you come away going, I can't stand those guys. But man, they're good. That's exactly what's happening here. They're so at all of the fact that Christ is unlike any other that word marveled means just simply simply means to be greatly amazed. It's the only time in all the Bible it's actually used in that way here. They're greatly amazed at Christ. He was and is unlike any other. And notice though for me this morning how they marvel at verse 17 and how that book ends verse 11. Take your eyes, drift it to the left of the page. Look at Mark 12, 11. The stone that the builders rejected, we saw this last week, has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We marvel differently than the Pharisees and the Herodians did that day. We marvel because this is the day that the Lord has made. This day, this day, May 14th. But why do we marvel at this day? Because of that day. Because of that day when the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. That day when Christ said, it is finished. When he won for us the victory upon the cross by his blood. That day is what gives significance to this day. And so we can wake up every morning and we can marvel. But due to that day. We marvel for the reason that on that day, he saved us. Why? Because we are not those who are in full allegiance to the king, Jesus. Even this week, we have, all of us, committed eternal acts of treason that demand that that God punish us with an eternal act of punishment, namely hell. And he doesn't. He doesn't. Because of Christ. We marvel at Christ. If you are here this morning and you have not marveled at Christ as your Savior, then I would plead with you to help to to recognize that you cannot have an eternal relationship with God unless you have a relationship with Christ the Son. I would plead with you to submit your life, repent of your sin. Take the free gift of salvation that is offered to you. It gives you not just saving grace, but it gives you a place in an eternal kingdom that is far better than Rome or any other that men might ever contrive. He saves you from your sin, but even more so, he saves you from the eternal punishment of the wrath of God. Believe on Christ. And yet, for the believer in Christ, there's way more. Not only do we bear his image in our design, now as those redeemed and purchased by his blood, we now bear his seal, namely the Holy Spirit. Think of, an, think of a king who would have a ring, a signet, 
his inscription upon it, and he would press it into hot wax upon a letter or a document stating everything read is from the lips of the king. And we, saved in Christ, have gone from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And God takes his Holy Spirit and he presses his on us. And he forms us and conforms us to the image of Christ. The authority of the Son is the authority of the Father. And by the authority of Christ, the Father seals us until the day of redemption. Listen to how the scriptures phrase this sealing. In Ephesians 1.13, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. 2 Corinthians 1.22, God has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Brothers and sisters, you bear the likeness and inscription, the seal of an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that never ends. That enough is truth for marveling at. How is your allegiance to Christ this morning? What needs to change to accurately display to your neighbors and family your loving allegiance to God? What things need to be rendered to God in your life? What likeness does the world see inscribed on your life? Benjamin Franklin In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. But he was wrong. For the believer sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the promise of eternal life is guaranteed by the shed blood of Christ. Eternal life is certain for the believer. Means of grace are certain for the believer. Authority is certain for the believer. God's sovereign control over all authority is certain for the believer. His grace is sure and certain, providing the ability to respond accordingly to the authority he has placed over us. We are grateful for Christ, our King, the perfect authority. Let's pray. Father, what a joy. What a joy to know that we have been bought with a price. Price no human could pay or even comprehend. A price that all of humanity, from the beginning to the end of time, could ever pay. No amount of money can pay this debt. But the shed blood of Christ did for us. We thank you, Father, that you have impressed upon us the Holy Spirit, you have placed upon us the gift of grace that conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would model that well for the world around us this week and how we deal with and relate to, talk about, honor and submit to the earthly authorities that you have prescribed for our benefit. May we look to you as the controlling force over all authorities. And as we look, humble ourselves and submit to the authorities you have given to us. We thank you for them. They're from your hand. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.